When you do the rap part, I'll do the beat. I'm not gonna. <laughs> no, wait, 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 for fans of season one of this podcast, you probably recognize Ollie. But you may be wondering, what happened to Owen's voice? The answer? Puberty. Why, thanks, Mom. That's not embarrassing whatsoever. Yeah, it is. It's totally embarrassing. Thanks. The fact that Owen's voice is deeper is a good indicator that we've let some time pass between our last episode and this one. Here's what he used to sound like 14 months ago. Yeah, I think I like any step-by-step cookbooks that have, like, pictures. And here's how he sounds now. Yo. Time flies. And before we get back into the flow of things and kick off the long-awaited season two, we thought we'd share where we've been and what we've been doing since season one of our podcast, which was approximately 87 years ago. Right around the start of World War II. Did you check your math, Dad? So, what have we been up to? The short answer is that we've been busy. And the long answer is actually what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Episode 1 of Season 2. Pee-pee-poo-poo. <laughs> okay, then. The actual title is Season 2, Episode 1, Wonton Fever. Wonton Fever. Welcome to our program. This is the Nom Nom Paleo Podcast with Michelle Tam, Henry Fong, and the Double O's. Join us as we go behind the scenes and reveal how we make a real food lifestyle fun, sustainable, and non-tastic. We're the food nerds behind Nom Nom Paleo, the award-winning food blog, app, cookbooks, and more. And we're also the parents of two growing boys, Big O. Hello. And Lil Lo. Hi. <laughs> and they're the reason we do what we do. It's been so long since we last recorded a podcast that I almost forgot about the format of these episodes. But as usual, let's start with something that we recently ate and enjoyed. And that would be one of my newest recipes, wonton meatballs. When I posted this recipe on my website and on social media a couple of weeks ago, I received a question that I hadn't anticipated getting. Someone asked me, what's a wonton? So did you just tell them to go do a Google search? No. I can be snarky, but I'm also conflict-averse, so I'm not going to get into a flame war with someone on the internet over little things like that. Of course, I didn't exactly answer the question of what a wonton is either. So, what is a wonton? Well, you should do a Google search. I think I will. That's the sound of a Google search. Okay, the first result I get from a Google search for wonton is its Wikipedia entry, which says that Wonton is a type of dumpling commonly found in a number of Chinese cuisines. The most common filling is ground pork and shrimp, with a small amount of flour added as a binder. The mixture is seasoned with salt, spices, and often garlic or finely chopped green onion. So, in short, a wonton is a Chinese dumpling. Yes, but you already knew that. Yeah. I grew up in my parents' Chinese restaurant, so I'm very familiar with wontons. Stuffing them, cooking them, and eating them. In Cantonese, wonton, or wonton, literally means swallowing clouds because the dumplings resemble clouds floating in soup. 
Wontons originate from southern China, where it was a food for the rich. Eventually, wontons made their way to Hong Kong, where they became a popular food for the masses. And because Hong Kong is an island city, seafood like shrimp became a key ingredient in wonton fillings. For generations, Chinese restaurants in America were started by Cantonese immigrants from Hong Kong and southern China. So wonton soup became a staple of Chinese restaurants like my parents'. But unlike Americanized foods like chop suey or sweet and sour pork, it wasn't just something that they served to American customers. Wontons were authentic Chinese food. As a kid, I remember going to Oakland Chinatown with my parents and heading to a hole-in-the-wall wonton joint that served steaming bowls of wonton noodle soup topped with sliced pieces of Chinese roast duck. I'd slurp up the noodles and eat the duck first, and then save the wontons until the very end. I saved the best for last. I was familiar with wontons too. Not from growing up in a Chinese restaurant, but in my mom's kitchen. As a kid, I'd watch my mom fill a bowl with finely minced shrimp, ground pork, and other ingredients. Then she'd knead the mixture with her hands really thoroughly until it was like a paste before scooping it into wonton skins. She'd delicately fold them into individual dumplings and then carefully drop them one by one into boiling broth to make wonton soup. Hey mom, remember when you wrote in your 6th grade diary about how mad you were that you always got served the smallest bowl of wonton soup? Hey! <laughs> Why are you reading my sixth grade diary? Because it's funny. We like how you were such an angry little girl. Do you know how angry I'm going to get if you keep reading my diary? <laughs> okay, guys. Michelle, you used to tell me that for Thanksgiving dinner, your family wouldn't have turkey or ham or mashed yams or pecan pie. Instead, your mom would serve wonton soup. Yes, and I loved it. I think she did it because it's easier. But I always felt lucky to get wontons for Thanksgiving instead of dry turkey. Wontons have a very special place in my heart, and for years I've been meaning to come up with a paleo and Whole30 friendly recipe with the same flavor profile of my mom's umami-packed pork and shrimp wontons. But without the wonton wrapper to keep it paleo. Exactly. A few weeks ago, I finally rolled up my sleeves and got started. When I develop new recipes, I usually begin by making an experimental batch for our dinner. And then based on feedback from you and the kids, I slowly refine the ingredients or the steps. Usually it takes me between three and six different tries before I land on a result that I think is blog-worthy. But with my wonton meatballs, I actually think I hit the mark right away on the first try. You definitely did. They were incredible. Even I like them. Yep. And I usually hate everything. You know a recipe is good when all he eats is dinner without getting yelled at. <laughs> but here's the thing. I never post a recipe after making something just once. So the next morning, I figured I'd make a second batch and maybe tweak it, like by adding some freshly grated ginger and by increasing the size of the meatballs a tiny bit. When they came out of the oven that Saturday morning, they smelled incredible and looked just as pretty as the ones I'd made the night before. They were plump and juicy looking and steaming hot. And I was looking forward to writing up the recipe right then and there, but then you picked up a meatball and bit into it. I did, and it was terrible. I know, you had this look on your face like you'd been traumatized. And you said very nicely, I might add. Michelle, did you try one yet? Uh, these are not quite the same as the ones you made last night. <laughs> that was an awful impression of me. That's exactly what you sound like. <laughs> well, that impression was about as terrible as those meatballs. Seriously? <laughs> so I bit into one of these to see what you meant and almost spit it out. The taste was... You know, not that different. They were actually still pretty tasty in terms of flavor. But all of a sudden, the texture had completely changed. And the pork was powdery. And the meatball disintegrated in my mouth. 
It wasn't bouncy or springy. It was just gross. And I had no idea what happened. Yeah, you, you really freaked out. Yeah, I had used the same pork from the same farm. I'd used the same shrimp. And so then the entire weekend, I was consumed with making tray after tray of wonton meatballs to try to recreate the texture of the original batch. I changed every factor I could think of, from the fat content of the pork to the temperature of the meat mixture. In one batch, I chopped the shrimp more coarsely, and in another batch, I barely mixed the meat together at all. I even added gelatin as a binding agent at one point to see if that would make a difference in the texture. Nothing worked. And all weekend long, we ate a lot of really terrible meatballs. I think it ended up being close to 50. Waste not, want not. I think you were having nightmares about making terrible meatballs. And by the end, I was having nightmares about eating terrible meatballs. And the kids were refusing to try any more meatballs at all. No offense, but the first batch was really, really good. But uh, after that, all the other batches were really, really gross. And we don't get paid to be taste testers. I know, right? After several days of testing, I sat down and tried to think about what was different about that first perfect batch of meatballs. And suddenly, I realized that the only real difference was that after the first batch, I'd added some freshly minced ginger. But could fresh ginger really be at fault? Could it be responsible for my mealy meatballs? You know how you could find out. You could do a Google search. That's brilliant! I did do a quick online search, and it turned out that ginger was the culprit all along. I think I googled, does fresh ginger cause mealy meatballs? And it did! Because apparently, similar to pineapple, fresh ginger contains a powerful enzyme called, I think it's zingabane? I don't know, that, that, that's how I think it's pronounced, that breaks down protein. The grated ginger I'd added to my meatball mixture was breaking down the collagen in my pork, literally turning it into mush as it cooked. I was in the shower when you discovered this. I remember this because you barged into the bathroom all of a sudden and started shouting at me about how you'd figured it out. That's right, there's no privacy. Not here. Solving food mysteries is exciting, and I had to tell you right away. I also learned that this only happens with fresh ginger and that the enzyme can be inactivated when the ginger is cooked, dried, or paired with an acid like vinegar or citrus. So dried ginger would have been perfectly fine, but the addition of fresh ginger had completely ruined my meatballs. Once I figured this out, I made one more batch of wonton meatballs, this time without adding any ginger. No fresh ginger, not even dried, because I was kind of sick of ginger by then. And as soon as I tried it, I almost started jumping up and down because they were every bit as bouncy and springy as the wontons my mom makes. So, 72 meatballs later, the recipe is now on my website, and in the past couple weeks, tons of readers have now whipped up these wonton meatballs and reported that they love them. So I feel pretty good about putting all that work into making sure that this is a recipe that accurately reflects how much I love my mom's wontons. But all of this could have been avoided if you had just stuck with the original test batch, right? Yes. Lesson learned. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you end up breaking it anyway, don't force your family to eat your failed experiments. You will always be my guinea pigs. The main course. Since this is the first episode we've recorded in well over a year, we thought we'd devote the main part of today's podcast to simply catching you up on what we've all been up to. As I've mentioned to those who have asked, we decided to hit pause on the podcast because we were working day and night to finish our new cookbook. But that was just one of the things we've been consumed with. Owen's been consumed with puberty. Oh, God. <laughs> Be quiet, Ollie. Okay. Well, that was easy.
We've been juggling a lot of projects, but the cookbook's been the top priority. Yeah. For listeners who are new to Nom Nom Paleo, we should mention that our first cookbook, Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans, was published way back in 2013. It was a labor of love for us, and we weren't sure we could ever top that effort. We had spent the better part of two years working on it, and we ended up stuffing it with over a thousand step-by-step photos and a ton of cartoon illustrations. Visually, it was very different from other cookbooks on the market, and quite frankly, we didn't know how or whether it would actually sell. But it turned out to be pretty successful, so thank you, all of you who have bought it. Our first cookbook ended up being a New York Times bestseller, and publications like the Wall Street Journal and Goodreads named it one of the best cookbooks of the year. Our cookbook was also nominated for a James Beard Award, which was a dream come true. But we were also incredibly burned out afterwards. We didn't just write that cookbook. We also shot every photograph in our kitchen, drew every illustration, and designed each page ourselves. And we were both working full-time jobs, so even though our publisher asked us right away to do a follow-up cookbook, we just didn't have the energy to throw ourselves into that craziness again. Instead, we decided to do something else. Season one of our podcast— And it was incredibly fun. Henry got to learn how to produce something new and different. And the kids like messing around with the microphones that we set up around our dining room table. Testing, 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 testing. Originally, I thought putting together a podcast would be simple. We just grab a recorder, hit the record button, and then post the audio file online. But my husband's a perfectionist, and he couldn't stand the idea of taking half measures. Henry insisted on buying a sound mixer and adding music and audio clips and transitions and polishing our dining room conversations before releasing them into the world. Well, you know, my philosophy is do it right or don't do it at all. But that philosophy meant that producing our podcast took a ton of Henry's time. We are, after all, just a mom and pop outfit, meaning it's pretty much just us doing everything. The podcast ended up sucking all of Henry's evenings after work. But after putting off our book publisher for a couple of years, we knew we had to start putting our second cookbook together. Something had to give. One option would have been for us to just turn our podcast into something a lot more, you know, casual and slapdash. Just a a quick check-in every week or so recorded on an iPhone or something. Super low production values. Something we could whip out without any planning or forethought. But then I met Dan Pashman, the host of one of my favorite food podcasts, The Sporkful, at a conference. And when I told him about our dilemma, he gave me some great advice. Only put out stuff you're proud of. At that moment, I knew we had to put the podcast aside and free Henry up to work on the book. I mean, there are only so many hours in a day, and Henry's day job already takes up most of his waking hours and can be pretty stressful. Juggling his work with his after-hours duties at Nom Nom Paleo was literally keeping him from sleeping. We didn't want to compromise the quality of either our book or our podcast or our sanity. So we picked a lane, cookbook first, and then back to the podcast later. We'd already been secretly working on the cookbook on and off for a few years. We tested and photographed a bunch of recipes, but when it came time to actually start putting all the pieces together, we really needed to focus. That meant not just developing and testing new recipes, but also doing all the photography, cartoon illustrations, design, editing, and production, which are all things that Henry does. (laughs) And in the meantime, we couldn't neglect our blog either. Or your children. Right. You're our top priority. We don't have childcare help, and with both Owen and Ollie sprouting before our eyes, we couldn't just lock them in their rooms and cross our fingers that they turn out okay. 
More than anything else, we want to be here and present for them. I don't know that we've always succeeded in balancing everything. But now, the cookbook is done. It's been turned into our publisher and will hit bookstores on August 1st. So our new book is called Ready or Not, 150 Plus Make Now, Make Over, and Make Ahead Recipes by Nom Nom Paleo. And it's available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Go order a copy. We're 99 bazillion copies. It's really different and unique in how it presents our recipes because we decided to include a photo for every single step of every single recipe. And it's all organized by your state of readiness. That way, no matter if you're totally prepared to cook or just scrambling to get something on the dinner table in no time flat, we'll have plenty of options for you. Plus, all of our recipes are laid out in a comic book format so you can follow along visually as you cook. We also created a companion wall calendar available for pre-order on Amazon that we hope will be a daily inspiration for you to get in the kitchen and cook. Don't forget the stickers. The calendar will come with a sheet of stickers. There are even stickers of cat. We'll get into the details of the cookbook and the wall calendar on a later episode of this podcast. But suffice it to say, we poured everything into this book, even more so than our first book. We think it'll knock your socks off. So long story short, this cookbook basically took over our lives. Well, it definitely took over your life. Henry works as a lawyer at a tech company here in the Silicon Valley. And whenever he's not working at his day job, he's been doing all the visual stuff for the Ready or Not cookbook and calendar. Just like with the first book. Cartoons, photos, book design, cover design, layouts. You know, all the cool stuff. So if dad's doing everything, what do you do, mom? I have the most important job. I order your dad around. Well, you also come up with all the recipes. Yes. And while the book was a huge project, there was plenty of other nom-nom-paleo stuff to do, too. It was a challenge whenever I had to focus on anything else. But I did my best to stay in touch with my loyal nomsters through the blog, weekly newsletter, and my social media feeds like Instagram. Oh, and also on your weekly Wednesday Facebook Live cooking demos. Right! One of the things we started doing during our podcast hiatus was we started doing live cooking demos from our home kitchen. I initially started doing them on Periscope, but in the time between season one and two of this podcast, Facebook launched live videos. And because lots of my readers are already on Facebook, I jumped ship instead of trying to convince people to adopt a new platform. So every Wednesday night at 5 p.m. Pacific or 8 p.m. Eastern time, I hop on my Facebook page, Nom Nom Paleo, and I cook a recipe while viewers comment and ask questions live. It's normally just me and the two kids making dinner for the night. Owen helps out by reading questions, so thank you, Owen. Yay! And Ollie wanders in and out of the frame with weird costumes on. If you've been watching along, even with the podcast on hiatus, you haven't had to miss my alluring voice. Hey, remember how on Facebook Live someone actually asked whether your voice was for real? Yeah. Real nice. Well, other people have said that your voice is really soothing. Yeah, as soothing as a crying baby on a plane. <laughs> Babies are cute. What else have we done in the last year? It's all a blur to me. Well, for the past six months or so, we've been working on a complete revamp of our website. Right. It's not just a new website design. We finally moved Nom Nom Paleo off of the Tumblr platform, which you've been on since you started Nom Nom Paleo back in 2010. We're on WordPress now, and for any bloggers or tech people out there, you know how big a difference it makes to be on a powerful, flexible platform that we can control. 
Yahoo owns Tumblr, and even though Tumblr was easy and free to use, as NomNom Paleo grew, we found that it didn't offer the same functionality or ability to scale. When our website occasionally went down, we had no way of even contacting Tumblr. With our move to WordPress, our new site is now easily pinnable for Pinterest fans, super searchable, faster, and most of the new unpopular posts now have printer-friendly recipe cards. We'll be even more diligent about adding new recipes to the blog now that we finished our cookbook, calendar, and blog rehaul. If you haven't checked out nomnompaleo.com lately, go give it a look. Cook something from it and give us your feedback. Hey mom, are you going to tell people about the other big thing that we did last year? What are you talking about, Ollie? Portland! Yes, of course. So right around the time we posted the last episode of the last season, we actually did something kind of impulsive. I think you mean you did something kind of impulsive. I guess I was using the royal we. You have to understand, Michelle is a closer. When she decides to do something, she just goes ahead and does it. And when she decided that we needed to buy a house in Portland, Oregon, and the family should go live there as a second home for part of the year, she pulled the trigger pretty quickly. I've always said that I love Portland. The people are incredibly nice, and over the years I've built a lot of friendships with folks there. Portland values creativity and quirkiness and everything that's both celebrated and mocked in pop culture. But there's also a fundamental friendliness and laid-back nature that really attracted me. I love that it's a bustling city, there's super easy access to nature and amazing hiking trails all around the city, like in Forest Park. The summers in Portland are amazing, the city's a quick drive away from both the coast and the mountains, and after living in drought-stricken California for so many years, I can't get enough of the green everywhere in the Pacific Northwest. I even love the rain. But most importantly, I love the food scene in Portland. Everyone cares so much about authenticity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Plus, it's so simple for me and Ollie to eat gluten-free just about everywhere. Don't worry, we'll devote an entire episode to all the tasty eats in Portland. So, to prove my love for the Pacific Northwest, we went and bought a place in Portland last year. Now we split our time between the Bay Area and Portland, and if I had my way, we'd be in Portland full-time. There's some really good reasons why we still go back and forth, though. First of all, my job is here in the Bay Area, and the kids' school district is fantastic. And our aging parents live here. Plus, there's lots to love about the Bay Area, too. San Francisco and the Silicon Valley may have changed a lot over the past few years, but we were born and raised here, and we have deep roots here. But let's talk about how we ended up with the house in Portland. Okay, so in December of 2015, in the bone-chillingly cold week between Christmas and New Year's, we decided to head up to Portland for the Peking Duck Dinner that our friend Chef Gregory Gourdet does at Departure Restaurant every winter. You may remember Gigi from episode two of last season. And while we were in Portland, I decided we might as well start looking at homes with a real estate agent. You know, just to actually check out the homes in person rather than just looking at Zillow alerts online. We'd been talking about buying a place in Portland for years, but we'd never done anything about it. I've actually had open house alerts from my favorite Portland neighborhoods emailed to me for the past three years. I wasn't sure there'd be a lot of open houses to see that week. Figured people wouldn't list their homes until after New Year's. On the other hand, because it was a super icy few days while we were there, I figured no one else would be dumb enough to go tour any homes that were on the market. So, you know, at least the home tours wouldn't be too crowded. I wasn't planning on finding a place I'd love. I just wanted to see what the market looked like. 
Disappointingly, most of the homes that we visited that week were not great. Maybe it was just the dreary time of year or the fact that many homes were either super old fixer-uppers or new but cookie-cutter homes that looked out of place in the neighborhoods. After several days of looking, I almost gave up on my pipe dream to relocate to the Pacific Northwest. But then a new listing popped up in my email on our second to last day in Portland. I didn't have high hopes for it because the online pictures weren't that great and the other homes we looked at earlier that week had awesome online photos but ended up being terrible. Like the house that had bedrooms on the third floor, but bathrooms only on the first floor? Or the really weirdly designed house that had a second story door that opened up to nothing except a sheer drop to the pavement below? Yeah, that's that giant modern monster home that had a full bath directly next to the kitchen stove, but no bathroom near the bedrooms. Anyway, my expectations were super low, but when we showed up and walked through the doors of the final house we visited that day, I fell in love. It was everything I wanted, minimalist, eco-friendly, designed to blend into the neighborhood, and located in a super walkable and friendly neighborhood. It even had a dedicated vegetable garden. The problem was that we weren't the only people interested in bidding on the place, and the owners were only accepting bids that one day. So we decided to put in an offer right then and there and see what happened. That night after submitting the bid, we all went to the duck dinner at Departure, the original reason for our trip to Portland, and we were enjoying an incredible feast with our friends Sydney and Jory and Matthew and Kyle and Lisa. We almost forgot all about our house bid. Then, as dinner was winding down, Owen was playing with my iPad, and he saw a text message come through from a real estate agent. Yeah, it said something like, congratulations, you got the house. And just like that, we suddenly became homeowners in Portland. Now we spend all of our free time in Portland, and our good friends and relatives occasionally stay there when they visit. It's been over a year since we bought our house there, and I've had no regrets because it's my favorite place to be, especially with you guys. Three, two, one. Aww. Wait, no, one step. Crush of the week. I actually have two crushes of the week, and they kind of go together. Rob Wolf's new book, Wired to Eat, and my handy-dandy glucose monitor. I've been recommending both to everyone I know. Henry knows that Rob's first book, The Paleo Solution, changed my life. It was one of the first paleo books, period, and it was the first paleo book I read that convinced me to try this crazy way of eating. Not to be all dramatic about it, but there would be no Nom Nom Paleo if Henry hadn't strategically left The Paleo Solution on my bedstand. Rob's follow-up book, Wired to Eat goes beyond paleo, and it helps you figure out what foods work best for you. As Rob says, the important question isn't, is this food paleo? But rather, is this particular food good for me? Rob reminds us that we're all special snowflakes, and it turns out that our gut biome, sleep quality, antibiotic exposure, and other things can affect our ability to tolerate different amounts and types of carbohydrates. And it's also why you prick your finger and check your blood sugar after you eat. I would never do that. It looks painful. I would only let you check my blood if I skin my knee or something. Ugh. I don't think we need to check your blood sugar just yet, kiddo. But yes... With Rob's 7-day carb test, he explains how we can find out which carbs, both amount and types, we do and don't tolerate. It does require you to prick your finger, but this data is so powerful. 
I mean, it tells you exactly how certain foods affect your blood sugar and allows you to see in a super objective way which foods work for you. For me specifically, I learned that although I love white rice and it seems like it's in my Asian genes to process and store it properly, my blood sugar actually shoots way up and stays elevated after I eat it. But with other carbs like potatoes, my blood sugar actually stays pretty stable. It's good that you're testing your blood sugar levels because didn't your 23andMe results say that you're genetically predisposed to type 2 diabetes? Yeah, but I thought I was kind of safe from it because I eat paleo. Or maybe I was just in denial. I mean, every time I went to a Vietnamese place and ate pho, I got super sleepy and groggy for hours afterwards. But I just ignored it. Yeah, Mom. You become narcoleptic and can't not nap. It's weird. For a long time, I just explained it away to myself that I just needed a siesta after every single Vietnamese lunch I had, for some reason. It never made sense, but my love of rice overrode all logic. Then, my registered dietitian slash organic farmer friend, Diana Rogers, got herself a blood glucose monitor and was shocked at her own results. That finally convinced me to buy a blood glucose monitor of my own and see what's happening with my blood sugar regulation. I was scared to poke my finger at first, but it's actually pretty painless. A paper cut is way worse. Yeah, when I tried it, I didn't feel a thing. But then again, I have nerve damage and I can't always feel my fingers. Remember that time you burned your finger on the stove and you didn't even know it until you smelled it? That's gross and sad. Over time, I just got over my fear of pricking my finger. And now I get excited to run a test after every meal to check my sugars. Per Rob, your postprandial blood glucose level, which means your level after a meal, should be between 90 and 115 milligrams per deciliter about two hours after a meal. The biggest eye-opener was when I measured my blood sugar level two hours after eating a bowl of pho, and it was 158, which is like a diabetic level. Everyone is different, though. Rob's wife, Nikki, has amazing blood glucose control no matter what carb she eats. Rob and I were texting each other the other day about how she's like Wolverine and how lucky she is. The kits and monitors are cheap, but the test strips can be expensive, right? That is true, but the point is that you can do a period of intensive testing to identify how different foods affect you, and then you won't have to keep testing after that. It's a lot better than becoming diabetic and then having to test yourself three or four times a day forever. So my recommendation is to buy a well-rated blood glucose monitor and use the data to be a healthier you. I even bought a monitor for my parents so they can check their sugars too. I hope you don't buy me one though. You should save your money and buy me some new basketball shoes because I'm a baller. Baller? Your motto should be all of the gear, none of the game. <laughs> Burn. Aw, snap. Be nice, boys. That's it for this week. This podcast was recorded and produced at Nam Nam Paleo World Headquarters, also known as the dining room table in our house, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, 50 feet from Jeremy Lin's parents' house. The Nom Nom Paleo theme song is by Mark Bartels, with additional music by Big O, Lolo, and Proletaire. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, our favorite online destination for wholesome products at wholesale prices. Pay one low membership price and you can shop from over 4,000 healthy, natural products. Always 25 to 50% off retail delivered straight to your door. 
Right now, if you go to nomnompaleo.com slash thrive, new users will get 25% off their entire purchase and free shipping on their first order. And in case you're wondering, unless stated otherwise, none of the brands or products mentioned sponsor this podcast. We just talk about the stuff we love. If you like this podcast, we have two favors to ask. First, you can visit us at nomnompaleo.com for show notes and links, and you can also find hundreds of step-by-step recipes, kitchen tips, snarky rating, and more. We also have an app, two cookbooks, a calendar, and an action figure you can check out. More information at nomnompaleo.com. And last but not least, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us get a sense as to what you like. Join us next time for more Nom Nom Paleo podcasts. And this is Lolo signing out. Bye-bye.